Welcome to The Dirt on the Past, a program of the Extreme History Project that explores the good, the bad, and the ugly about our human past. Because, let's face it, Crystal. Yep, history is not pretty, but it is so important to know. Because it is the very thing that has led us to the most critical concerns that we have in the present. So join me, Nancy Mahoney. And me, Crystal Alegria. As we talk to archaeologists and historians who have been digging in the dirt. And in the archives. To uncover the fascinating histories that are not only relevant to today's issues. But help us move forward in a better way with a deeper understanding of our past. Welcome, everyone, to this week's edition of the show. I'm Nancy. And I'm Crystal. And we are co-hosts of The Dirt on the Past. This week, we are at the KGLT studios speaking in person with Amanda Hendricks-Komodo about her new book, Imperial Zions, Religion, Race, and Family in the American West and the Pacific. We are excited to talk with Amanda. But first, Crystal, I want to check in. How was your week? This week is busy, but it is good. Um, We've been really organizing for the summer. So the summer is coming fast and furious. And we are getting... Not according to the weather. I know. Yeah. The weather, man. I know. The calendar and the weather are not in sync. Yeah. But we are are gearing up for summer months and we're getting all of our walking tours, kind of um, our program a little bit... Uh, changed. Are and, you doing new working, walking tours? Um, we are not probably going to, we might do one new walking tour this year, but we we did one new walking tour last year, uh-huh. so we're going to kind of continue on with that one. Nice. But we might reconfigure things a little bit. So, hmm. um, so yeah, it's kind of that planning time of year, writing a lot of grants, um, doing that sort of thing. And we had a wonderful... Uh, presentation by Amanda last um, about two weeks ago now that we talked about on the podcast last time. And um, you did a wonderful presentation, Amanda, and looking forward to talking with you today. But I have to say, going back to the weather, the weather that evening was just terrible. And it was so cold. It was like, I don't know, five degrees or something. And the wind was howling. I left my car running during your whole talk. It's a hybrid. And I just thought, I can't face getting out there to a cold car. And I didn't want to leave early. (laughs) Yeah. So I'm so glad that we're talking with you on this podcast so that those that stayed home and stayed warm are going to be able to listen to this. So Well, and you're actually uh, making it warmer than it was. It was negative 13. I believe it wasn't even five. Yeah, it was. And the wind was just really, really bad. Bitterly cold. Bitterly cold. So, um, but we did have, you know, quite a few of our regulars come out for the night. So that was wonderful. And good questions at the end. It was good. It was really good. It was really good. But Nancy, what about you? What's happening with you these days? Well, in my neck of the woods, we got some abstracts in for um, the Montana Archaeology Society meetings. So that's exciting. Those coming up and we'll be talking about our podcast there, which is great. And we are um, at the store. Spring is on the agenda. Our new spring lines are coming in, and we just have them in the back because it's going to snow on Friday. So it's all good. I'm excited. Mentally, I'm ready for spring. I feel like we're all kind of getting there. Um, But yeah, this was kind of a nice relaxing week. And I think people are getting ready to head out of town. I start hearing people around campus. Yeah, saying goodbye. I'll see you after break. Yeah. So and we'll have a break next week, too, right? We're off. We Mm -hmm. will. We will be off because 
Um, Drake and Sienna, who helped produce this podcast, will be on spring break. So we're going to take the week off as well. <laughs> right, right. So we should probably get back yeah. to our guests. I also wanted to mention our sponsor for this podcast, Nancy. The Montana State University Women's Center is sponsoring, and we're so glad to have their support. They support us. They've supported us for years, and we're so glad that they have um, are willing to support this podcast. Um, the MSU Women's Center works with students, faculty, staff, and community members to create an equitable environment through educational programs and support services. And if you live in the Bozeman area, make sure to check out their SAC lunch seminars. They are wonderful. I I will um, trundle up here to MSU quite often to attend. They are always helpful and very, very informative. And there's an upcoming SAC lunch seminar that looks fascinating. It's called The Golden Age, The Male Gaze, and The Superhero Wave, Exploring the History of Feminism and Hollywood, presented by MSU Sociology and Women and Gender Studies instructor Sarah, boy, that's a mouthful, (laughs) Sarah Johnson Palamaki on March 29th at noon in the Student Union Center here on the MSU campus in room 168. So a big thanks to the Women's Center for sponsoring today. That's that's so exciting to have a sponsor. We're thrilled. We're thrilled. And we help to support them as much as we can. So we're, but we're so excited to have Amanda Hedricks Komodo with us today. So welcome, Amanda. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, and Amanda, I usually start off by telling our listeners about our guests. So Amanda Hendricks Komodo received her doctorate from the University of Michigan in 2015 and currently is an assistant professor in the Department of History and Philosophy at Montana State University. Dr. Hendricks Komodo has received a Faculty Excellence Grant and a Scholarship in Creativity Grant in 2018 and a National Endowment for the Humanities and Summer Seminar Fellowship in 2022. She is the author of Imperial Zions, Religion, Race, and Family in the American West, and is currently writing a biography on Joseph Smith's niece, Ina Kulbrith, who has become an important who had become an important poet in California. Hold on a second. Did I pronounce her name correctly? Yeah, uh, there's a debate about that. I've been oh. corrected both ways, both times at the Oakland Public Library where she was their librarian. So it's oh. either Ina or Ina, depending on who you talk to. Okay. So, Amanda, we're so glad to have you here today. But before we dive into your book, I really just wanted to start off by asking you, what brought you to the field of history? So I've always been interested in the ways in which things that initially appear weird can give us glimpses into the ways that the past is unlike the present. So one of my favorite books in college was a book called The Great Cat Massacre, which is about some apprentices in France who feel as though their master is not treating them correctly and is treating the cats better than he's treating their own apprentices. And so the article uh, or the chapter in the book starts out with the apprentices killing the cats um, and sort of a mock execution. Wow. And what the author asks is, what can this execution tell us about class relationships in France and the ways in which things are beginning to go awry in the early modern period? Fascinating. I absolutely, I mean, it's also just a great title. Yes. Uh, And I wish I had a title that was nearly as good. um, It's a sexy title. Yes. (laughs) Um, And so I've just always been interested in moments like that. I also um, really 
like to think about the ways that people have experienced in the past. And I think for me, history is a way of empathizing with people and understanding the world in which they inhabit. And so there are some historians who are really interested in economics, some who are interested in environmental history. But for me, it's always been about the people and the worlds that they lived in and then the experiences that they had. Mm, I I can very much relate to that with my background in anthropology. I think that's what drew me in, especially for me, not just in the past, but even in in the present or recent past, just these cultures that seem so wildly different and their behavior may seem initially so strange and difficult to understand. And just that translation and realizing it's just another way of being a human in the world. And it does, I think, mean you have to have a lot of empathy if you're going to enter that field. Um, So I I find that similar shared love for history and and anthropology. So your research interests span the American West, the history of sexuality, religious history, Native American history, Mormon history. Um, And then in teaching, you have taught American West, women's history, religious history, also some British history, and a lot about colonialism and imperialism. So you teach in the history department. And just before we delve into your book, we wanted to ask a little bit more about what you like about not just being a historian in the research, but what you like about teaching and being a professor at MSU, and if you have classes that you feel like are especially enjoyable for you to teach. I think one of the things that most professors would say that they like is when students come into the classroom and are able to tell you something or help you see something that you hadn't seen before. There's a lot of ways in which the things that I've teach I've taught a bajillion times before. But my not necessarily brightest, although that's part of it, but many of my students, no matter what background they come from, are able to sort of bring new light or new insights to text and help me understand the world in which we live just a little bit better than um, I did before. I think one thing, though, that might set me apart from other faculty members is some of the ways in which I teach. One of the things that I used to be before I was a professor was an elementary school teacher, And that was back when the Teaching American History grants um, were still being funded. And so I took one as an elementary school teacher. And it was about how to teach using children's literature and how to teach history using children's literature. And there was a unit on the Civil War. There was a unit on Native American history. And we read a lot of just fabulous picture books and um, novels and chapter books about the Civil War, about slavery, and talked about how to incorporate those Because at the time, under No Child Left Behind, there was only 15 minutes a day allotted for both science and social studies. And so, yeah, the only way that kids were going to get a good social studies education was to incorporate it into the English language arts section. And a lot of history majors plan to become teachers or end up becoming teachers. And so one of the things I try to do in many of my classes is incorporate a children's book of some sort. Um, And then last year, or maybe it was the year before, I got to teach a class on race in America, and I taught it using only children's books. Oh, my goodness. That must have been so amazing. I mean, I can't imagine when I went to the bookstore and (laughs) saw that title. That must have been amazing. I mean, things that that you would never think would teach really well were Little Women is an amazing book, um, and Louisa May Alcott hated it um, because she felt like she'd sold out. She was an abolitionist. She'd grown up as one, and she only mentioned slavery once or twice in that book. Wow. Um, It's technically race and class in America, so we also read Beverly Cleary's 
Ramona, yeah, which is one of, well, you know, it's yeah. one of the best like explorations of what it means to be working class in America um, and has held up better than most other books written at the time. Wow. Oh, that's neat. That must yeah. have been such an experience for those students to do, to, to learn in that way. Yeah. And you get a sense also of what classics that you read are no longer considered classics. Yeah. Um, and who has not heard of the books that sort of shaped your childhood. Right. Um, right. Yeah. That happens quickly. But how interesting also to, I think it, it gives them this window into almost anything that they're reading, they're realizing, putting it in its context and looking at what's being mentioned and what's not and what's taken for granted yeah. in those texts, it kind of means they could bring those critical thinking questions to anything they're encountering. Yeah. yeah. Well, and children's literature, I think, is really important for the ways that people think about race because mm -hmm. you have to be taught Yes. How to think about race. And the way that we do it is through our education system and the books that kids read. And so all of the things that you would talk about in a normal class about race in class are present within those children's books. Right. Powerful. Fantastic. I yeah. love that. So, Amanda, like I talked about at the beginning, um, you did a presentation for the Extreme History Project lecture series a couple weeks ago. And in this presentation, you started off by talking about your family history. And I know this is really important for you for the work you do as a scholar of the Latter-day Saints, but it really grounded the presentation. It really grounded the history you were going to be speaking about and really helped us as an audience better understand your place within this history. And... Um, like we like to say at Extreme History, we are our history. So I was when you were speaking to that, I was just really thinking about that. And it, this is such a good example of, of, of how we are our history. So why is it important for you to start off a presentation in this way? Well, one of the reasons why I started it out that way is it's become somewhat traditional, at least at Montana State, maybe at other institutions, maybe not so much, to start off by acknowledging that we are sitting on the land of indigenous peoples. But there's also been a call to go a bit further and to recognize that those structures of colonialism and dispossession are still with us and are still being enacted on people daily. And that means that me as a professor at Montana State I'm part of those structures, and part of recognizing those structures means talking about your own position within them. And so I wanted to talk about my place within this history in order to sort of recognize the ways in which I'm implicated in this history. As I said uh, within the presentation, um, so the book is about the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, more commonly known as the Mormons, and my father's um, family has a long tangled history with the Latter-day Saints. Um, the first person in my family to convert to the church converted in the 1830s, so in upstate New York, before the Latter-day Saints had even sort of moved to Ohio or to Illinois. That's right at the beginning, the yeah. origins. Um, wow. I mean, it's sort of, I didn't actually know as an undergraduate that that was true. I found that out while doing this research. Wow. Um, I knew that my dad was was had been a Latter-day Saint. He's an ex-Mormon. Um, I should say quickly, the church prefers that you use the term Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I'm still learning, so I still often refer to people as Mormons, um, which isn't out of disrespect. But I always try to refer to non-Mormons and ex-Mormons by those terms because that's what they prefer. Okay. Um, and so my dad is an ex-Mormon. Um, and so I knew a little bit about the history of his family, but I didn't know all of it. And... In graduate school, I had a professor who sort of pushed me to consider my own relationship to colonialism. And for me, that meant unearthing sort of 
the my family's history and the role of the church in the region that I grew up in. Um, and it really helped me as I was uncovering these things to realize exactly how how Mormon I was because of my family history and how much the church had influenced me, even though I've never been baptized, I never grew up into it. I've been to a couple services with my grandma, um, but never had a deep relationship with the church itself. But doing this history helped me to realize that it's still a part of who I am because of where I grew up. Yeah. Okay. Let's take a quick station break, and then we're going to dive a little bit more into, into your history and also your book. You are listening to The Dirt on the Past with co-hosts Crystal Alegria and Nancy Mahoney on KGLT Bozeman or wherever you find your podcasts. We're speaking today with Amanda Hendricks Komodo about her new book, Imperial Zions, Religion, Race, and Family in the American West and the Pacific. I was struck when I was reading uh, your introduction about, or the note on terms, about which you just previously referred to, the preference for the full title, Church of Jesus Christ of the Latter-day Saints. And and that is a mouthful. And I grew up knowing of people as Mormons or LDS. And you, you had discussed the preference for the full thing. And I just looking at your title for the book, I'm realizing you probably just couldn't put Mormon or LDS or the whole thing in there. So Zion kind of stands in a bit for... Yeah. Yeah. Okay. The, the press actually wanted to put Mormon in. And I, when they asked me, said, well, there's just been this recent statement. The church doesn't um, want to be called by that term. And I don't want to turn anybody off. Um, they wanted to put it in there for marketing reasons. Obviously, the, the term Latter-day Saints is such a mouthful. Yes. Um, and it's actually been a fairly contested history. The reason why you grew up uh, using that term is for a while the church embraced the term Mormon. They did. Okay. Yeah. And so there's a, a campaign, gosh, it must be a couple decades old now, um, from the early 2000s called the I Am a Mormon campaign. Okay. And so the church in the past would use it in um, advertisements. They would refer to themselves as Mormon. There have been other periods in church history in which it's been a term that people haven't wanted to use. And so... This is probably a moment in which we're going back to Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but I wouldn't be shocked if it went the other way eventually. Well, I know when I started teaching here at MSU, I did have students who would introduce me when they would be coming up Mm -hmm. in classes and saying that they were Mormon. They had people who might have gone on missions to places that I was talking about in an anthropology class. But that was the way they introduced themselves. So it it was, for me, a little bit of a a pivot. But for, for a listener's... Could you just give us a a brief connect the dots between where you said your oldest Mm -hmm. ancestor converted back in upstate New York, which is where this all began with Joseph Smith, and how we end up, in this case, in Idaho um, and out west in general? Yeah. So to give a brief history, and I'll try to keep it brief, of the church, the church really starts in upstate New York, which was an area that had been in the early 19th century a place where there were a lot of revivalist preachers going through, uh, preaching the gospel, trying to convert people to their specific sect of Christianity. And what Joseph Smith claims is that as a young man, sometime probably in the 1820s, I may be slightly off on on that date, um, he felt a deep anxiety over which church that he should join. And so one day he prays 
um, and his prayers are answered with a, a vision um, in which he sees, um, depending on which version you read, either an angel or sometimes Jesus Christ is present. But he has a vision in which he finds out that none of the churches on earth contain uh, the fullness of the gospel and that his calling is going to be to reestablish the true church. Um, part of this is he's told that there's a record um, that has been buried in uh, in the Hill Cumorah, which is nearby in upstate New York, and he is supposed to unearth it. And this record is a history of God's dealings with the peoples in the Americas. Um, and that becomes the Book of Mormon. From fairly early on, um, he ends up founding the church in 1830. There's persecution uh, focused on the Latter-day Saints. And so they start moving from upstate New York to Ohio, to Missouri, to Illinois, because of the violence that they are experiencing as a community. Do you know what the initial cause of violence and yeah. people persecuting them was? So there's a couple of potential reasons. Um, one is early Latter-day Saints are communalists. Um, they live in a society eventually in which there's an expectation that you consecrate your goods to, to God and then the community redistributes them. There are accusations that they're trying to establish a theocracy. Um, Joseph Smith at one point runs for president. Um, that would be in the 1840s. Um, there's also uh, rumors that are spreading fairly early on um, about Mormon uh, relationships with Native Americans and accusations that these Latter-day Saints are going to combine with Native peoples and then try to overthrow the U.S. government. Um, there are rumors fairly early on about polygamy, although that practice isn't officially announced until 1852. I thought that was a lot later, so that's yeah. why I was curious. Okay, but this sounds, now I think I understand a bit better, these general fears that may seem against some American mainstream ideas yeah. associated with Christianity, but economics and separation of, you know, church-state kind of things. Okay. Yeah. So after they're, they're leaving and we have them moving out of New York, um, they make several stops. Nauvoo is one of them. Yeah. And where is that? So they end up in Illinois in a town called Nauvoo. My Illinois geography is not all that fantastic. I have never lived in Illinois. The closest I've gotten is Michigan. Um, so it is somewhere in Illinois near the Mississippi River. Not Chicago. Gotcha. Yes, not okay. Chicago. Maybe near Springfield. Uh, sorry. We'll leave it at that. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds good to me. Um, and while they are in Nauvoo, um, the tensions begin to escalate. And Joseph Smith is jailed um, on accusations of defrauding people um, and concerns of the local sort of non-Mormon community. Um, theocracy is part of their concerns. There's been a lot. There's actually a lot of violence in this time period. Um, Kansas, for example, in this time period is experiencing a lot of violence. Yes, very over violent slavery. period. Yes. yes. Okay. So it's not just the Latter-day Saints. Sure. But during this time period of violence, a mob um, ends up attacking Joseph Smith um, and the other Latter-day Saints who are in prison with him and kills Joseph Smith. Um, the way that you phrase that will out you as a non-Mormon or as a Mormon. Uh, mm. Non-Mormons tend to phrase that in the passive tense. It was very hard for me there to put it in the 
active tense. They'll tend to say, Joseph Smith was killed. Um, whereas Mormons will tend to say, a mob murdered Joseph Smith. Okay. Um, and so there's lots of debates over where the culpability for that ultimately lies um, that fall along religious lines. After that, the Latter-day Saints are concerned about the violence that is continuing to be enacted on their community. And Joseph Smith, before his death, had already been thinking about removing the community again. There had been discussions about moving west. Um, and Brigham Young uh, emerges as one of the leaders of the Latter-day Saints and takes a portion of the Latter-day Saints to Utah. Um, there are people who remain behind. Uh, Joseph Smith's wife, Emma, for example, does not follow Brigham Young and does not accept his authority as a new prophet. Um, she eventually forms her own church, which rejects polygamy, denies that Joseph Smith ever practiced polygamy, and her son, uh, Joseph Smith's son, ends up becoming the prophet of that church. There's also a man named Jane Strang who takes a group up to Michigan. Um, he establishes a new uh, Latter-day Saint community on an Beaver Island in Michigan, um, and they still exist today. So there's all these different sects that come out of that original Latter-day Saint community. Yeah. Um, is Joseph Smith's wife's sex still in existence today yeah, as well? They uh -huh. are originally called the Reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Okay. Um, they are now called the Community of Christ. Um, they have congregations all over the world. Um, they tend to be a bit more progressive than uh, what Mormon scholars will call the Brighamite Church after Brigham Young okay. uh, or the mainstream LDS Church. Um, they have female pastors. Um, they, there's been some debates about LGBTQ issues within that church, but they tend to be much more progressive. Um, and then they also have, uh, branches in, in French Polynesia. So, um, there's lots of these different communities that end up forming, but that's how they end up in Utah. And then once they're in Utah, Brigham Young wants to establish uh, a Mormon kingdom and he sends out Latter-day Saints from Utah to make new settlements in southern Utah, in Idaho, in Wyoming, Nevada, Arizona. Um, and so he'll call people and then send them out to form these new settlements. When, <clears throat> when Brigham Young decides to go west, mm -hmm. paint a picture for us about what he would have been envisioning in terms of who was there, what was considered yeah. part of the U.S. at the time and what wasn't. So what was attractive about moving west? What did he expect that he would find in new opportunities versus other people who decided to stay where they were? Yeah. So there's two things that he's interested in. One, the part of the American West that he moves to is under the control of Mexico at the time. So he is moving out of U.S. jurisdiction. And one of the things that they're hoping is that the U.S. will be, and U.S. citizens will be less likely to assault them and they'll be less likely to experience violence if they remove themselves from the boundaries of the United States. They arrive in Salt Lake in 1847, which means fairly soon afterward you have um, the U.S.-Mexico War, the Treaty of Guadalupe-Hildalgo, and so very quickly the land that they are inhabiting is annexed by the United States. The other thing that they're interested in relates to the Book of Mormon. Um, and so the Book of Mormon uh, imagines um, or chronicles the history of um, of a group of American Israelites that Latter-day Saints believe are the descendants of, or sorry, ancestors 
of Native Americans. And so by moving west, one of the hopes of Brigham Young is that they will be able to convert more Native Americans than they had been able to in the Midwest and then in the East. Um, and so they see themselves as moving um, to the land of the Lamanites. And Lamanites is the term that Latter-day Saints were used to refer to Native Americans. And this is interesting, going back to what you said about fears about Joseph Smith in the beginning with this combining with Native Americans. So there's some sense that to some degree these original descendants of Israelites have been over here. But now let's get into some of the other things you discuss in the book, which deal with the fact that Native Americans then didn't stay in this frame of mind where they were descendants of Israelites you know, Israelites and believed the same thing as they fled Jerusalem, but that as they stayed in the Americas, there was some sort of degeneration or falling away. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And part of that process, there's some language that you refer to where we start to bring in the body and sexuality and all these things that you tie through. And there's two things going on here. One, you point out it, it, the perceptions of Mormons themselves become tied up with racialized sexuality mm-hmm. in the body and the Mormons themselves dealing with race. So part of it is as they sort of fell away from original teachings that their skin would darken and they would become less desirable body-wise to people yeah. who were still. So let's talk about that. And then after you tell us a little bit about that, I want to discuss how this was even turned on the Mormons themselves because mm-hmm. of their polygamy and that whole aspect of not being monogamous kind of racialized them in a way that tied race and sex together. Yeah. So the Book of Mormon, um, many people have argued that it's fundamentally a family story. It's about uh, a group fleeing the destruction of Jerusalem, a group of brothers, their father, their mother, and they end up founding sort of massive civilizations in the Americas. And For 19th century Latter-day Saints, they are imagining these histories through 19th century racial categories. And so their assumption is that the group who is fleeing Jerusalem is fairly light-skinned. And the Book of Mormon talks about some of the family members falling away from the gospel. And then according to the Book of Mormon, God places a mark or a dark skin upon them. Uh, to make them less sexually desirable to the more faithful um, descendants. And the light-skinned people are often referred to as Nephites, and then the dark-skinned people become called Lamanites. And that's actually the name. It's They're named after the two brothers. There's actually, I think, three brothers involved, although I'd have to look. Nephi is the faithful brother. Laman is the unfaithful brother. And so their descendants are sort of categorized in this way. And so... There's this this combining of an assumption that dark skin isn't beautiful and that dark skin is something that white people will not find sexually desirable. For Latter-day Saints in the 19th century, and I do want to emphasize that people living now who are Latter-day Saints don't necessarily believe this, um, but they have an assumption that if Native Americans accept the Latter-day Saint gospel, return uh, sort of to what Latter-day Saints see as their original belief system, that they will become physically lighter. And all the way into the 1960s, um, there will be stories coming from Latter-day Saints about Native Americans who are living within a Mormon community and are lighter than the people who have Uh, remained on the reservation. When Mormon missionaries go out among Native people, Native people have their own 
belief systems. They have their own histories. And so most Native Americans, when they hear the Book of Mormon, do not sort of go, oh, I've been wrong all along. I obviously have missed out on something. This is the history of my people. There are some Native Americans who do convert, but the vast majority of Native Americans don't convert or accept the Book of Mormon as a history of their people. And even today, um, among Native Latter-day Saints, the idea of the Lamanite um, is a very contested issue. There are some um, Native Americans who see it as a really meaningful term, who see it as something that identifies them as the children of God. There are others who see it as a deeply racist term um, that degrades them as individuals. And so it's a history that has been really contested um, among Latter-day Saints. Mm-hmm. And then you say also in the book that the Mormons themselves uh, also become um, recipients of these ideas about mm-hmm. race and sexuality and darkening. There's there's quotes you have that go that, you know, from British all the way through mm-hmm. early American history that even lower classes, things that are outside of monogamy and highly sexualized, you know, those kinds of practices that aren't sort of mainstream monogamous, patriarchal um, within the bounds of Christianity are, are termed in ways that are considered... Um, you know, darker. And so that when people hear that Mormons are practicing polygamy, it's again, I'm sure there's fear about this, but it almost makes them sort of the recipients of this racial and sexualized ideas about that are derogatory. Yeah. I mean, Britain is an empire in the 19th century and the United States is a former British colony that is engaged in its own colonialism. Uh, with Native American peoples and then elsewhere. And I think one of the things that goes on in colonialism is the people who are in power have to find a way to justify that and to define themselves against the people that they're colonizing. And marriage and sexuality is one of the ways in which they do so. In the United States, from the colonial period, I would even say till now, there is an association with monogamy and whiteness. Um, There's an idea that sort of respectable, upright white people are monogamous and that it's people in the Middle East, it's people in Asia, it's people in Africa who are polygamous. These different, darker cultural practices that are not Christian, that are not, yeah. 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 And so when Latter-day Saints start to practice polygamy, they they point to the Old Testament as its origin. They point to the fact that the patriarchs... It is in there. Yeah. yeah, They got it. Um, (laughs) (laughs) They're not wrong. Yeah. I mean... And those people yeah. probably weren't very white either that they're no, talking about. No, I know. I mean, so so it all comes back true. around. I know. <laughs> <laughs> and so when, you know, white middle class Protestants, and we should say it's mostly Protestants who are talking here, um, look at Latter-day Saints, they attach the um, associations that they have with polygamy to Latter-day Saints. Um, I do want to mention really quick. It also goes the other way. Um, I have a friend, Kara French, who just wrote a book about uh, celibacy. And we were in grad school at the same time. And she writes about there were actually riots um, in the streets surrounding Catholics and the practice of celibacy. And so Protestants are both concerned about polygamy um, and they are concerned about celibacy, which led us, um, and you might want to, it's up to you if you edit this out, but we used to make a joke <laughs> that it's sort of like Goldilocks, yes. uh, that the Catholics are having too little sex, yes. the Mormons are having too much, yes. and the Protestants are just right, yes. um, which is basically how people in the time period are seeing it. 
Wow. At least the people that were writing the histories at the time. Yes, exactly. (laughs) No. Well, I would say that they're all that wrong about the Catholic um, patriarchy. So, yeah. (laughs) All right. I'll turn it over to you, Crystal. All right. So I want to just back up a little bit and talk about, you know, how... You were you were saying that they came west, they settled in Utah, they settled in then in Idaho, Wyoming. And of course, these places that they're settling in are, are not empty. They right. are full of people who, like you said, have their own belief systems, their own social structures, um, civilization in place for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. So um, when the um, Latter-day Saints are coming in, there's a little bit of a conflict. There's some conflict that happens. And you start your book off with the um, Bear River Massacre. So can you tell us a little bit more about this conflict and the outcomes of the massacre and the ultimate effects, which you've kind of talked a little bit about here, of um, this colonization aspect? Yeah. So the Bear River Massacre happens in Idaho. Um, And to orient people who may know a little bit about Idaho, but not a ton, it happens sort of near the Idaho-Utah border um, around... So maybe 15 to 20 minutes outside of Logan, um, near Malad is nearby. And the Latter-day Saints had originally entered that area looking for places uh, where they could graze their cattle, also looking to establish white settlements. And their arrival, and this is a story that is a, that is as old as American colonialism. Uh, I don't want to say as old as time, but as old as American colonialism. When the white U.S. settlers come in, they end up disrupting native foodways by bringing in not only their own crops, but also their livestock who graze upon the land. And southeastern Idaho, which is where I'm originally from, is a high desert area. Um, There is plenty of, well, there are some trees. Um, I was going to say plenty of trees, but that's only true if you're from southeast Idaho. Um, <laughs> it's not a forest. It's no. <laughs> when I moved to Michigan, I got really confused because I couldn't see <gasps> I know. from yes, the freeway right? all of the buildings, and I couldn't figure out how I was supposed to know where to go. Yeah. Um, and so it's really a high desert area. There's now a lot of sagebrush. Um, and the Native communities had adapted their culture and their lifestyle to that landscape. But the arrival of U.S. American agriculture, the cattle, ends up disrupting their ability to gather and grow food, to hunt, because the cattle are destroying the plants that they had cultivated, and they're also um, displacing deer and bison and other animals. And so this landscape is Shoshone land primarily, and the Shoshone end up Um, experiencing a high amount of poverty. And in the area, there's also nearby Ute and Paiute, um, as well as other tribes, the Bannock. And there had been a fair amount of violence between the white Mormon settlers and these Native peoples as the Ute and these other groups begin to realize that they are being, they're starving to death in some cases because of the Mormon cattle, and they begin to attack the cattle. And they have horses, the Ute and some of these other tribes? uh, Yeah, they have horses, some of them, because of earlier Spanish colonialism. Mm -hmm. And so this isn't even a space that is... That where the Latter-day Saints are the first colonists. There had been Spanish colonialism earlier. This is an area of fur trade. Um, 
there are fur traders from the Hudson's Bay Company in Idaho. And so there's all of these pre-existing it's been hundreds relationships. of years of yeah. missionaries, fur traders, Spanish. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so when the saints come in, they are coming into this space that has already begun to be colonized, but their presence ends up disrupting these foodways. And the white Mormon settlers, um, they have both sexual and non-sexual relationships with the Shoshone who are in the area. There are children who are born, um, but they also have really tense relationships because of the tensions over food and the tensions over whether or not the Latter-day Saints are going to graze their cattle in certain areas. And during the U.S. Civil War, um, there's a detachment from the U.S. Army that is in Idaho and Utah. And uh, Patrick Connor has heard some um, stories about depredations uh, from Native people that have been happening on white settlers. And he uses these as an excuse to attack a band of Northwestern Shoshone who had been camped on the Bear River in January, so it's really, really cold, um, doing some ceremonial dances that are part of sort of the seasonal turn. And the descendants of this band of Shoshone emphasized that they were not the ones who were involved. Although I think we can all say even the ones who were involved would not have deserved this and had, were perhaps justified in attacking the cattle who are destroying their ability to live. Um, we have rules in the West, right, where if there's a cattle who uh, transgresses on your land, depending on what state you're in, you may or may not be able to take care of that cow. Um, take care of being a euphemism for something else. Right, right. Um, and so Connor leads his regiment of California volunteers against the Shoshone, and um, there are just horrific stories that come out of that day. Um, they, According to the Shoshone, the California volunteers shot indiscriminately. Um, there are stories of white soldiers taking infants and then bashing their heads against the rocks. Um, there's some question about whether that imagery is coming from the Bible, because that does happen in the Old mm -hmm. Testament. Infants are destroyed in the Old Testament by having their heads bashed against rocks. There's um, contested stories of rape. Um, and within a couple of hours, hundreds of people are dead. And the Northwestern Shoshone afterwards are sort of forced to ask themselves the question, what's next? Um, their way of life, their ability to eat has been destroyed. Um, hundreds of people are dead. And they live for a couple of years, sort of uh, destitute, um, moving from place to place as they once had done on their seasonal rounds, but unable to find enough food. And famously in Mormon history, many of the Northwestern Shoshone end up converting uh, to the church, um, whether that be uh, because of a need for food or the North Northwestern Shoshone have stories about receiving a vision telling them that the way forward is to join with the Latter-day Saints. Mm. Um, and this is a story mm. that would have been repeated time and time again in Utah. Um, there's another story of a massacre in which uh, a white Latter-day Saint community was attacked by, I think, a group of Paiutes. And they end up finding another group of Native Americans who had not been involved um, capturing them, bringing them to town, putting them in a cellar, and then they decide that ultimately what they're going to do is take them out one by one and shoot them. Um, there are a couple of survivors who are then raised in the community that killed their parents and their families. Oh my gosh. So 
after this brutality of that specific massacre yeah. in that area, and some northern Shoshone do convert and do adopt farming mm-hmm. practices, um, you start to mention that there's some adoption of, of mm-hmm. young folks that are orphaned or someone can't look after them or they're a child of two different parents and get raised within a a white Mormon household. Um, Talk a little bit then about what is the status of these Shoshone or other Native Americans that have married in, adopted in, or become Mm -hmm. Mormon. How are they treated uh, in that society, in the the Latter-day Saint society? Yeah, it's a really complicated question. Um, going back to Illinois for a moment, one of the rumors that uh, had circulated about that community is that Joseph Smith had received a revelation telling him to encourage white Latter-day Saints to marry Native women. Um, there is no Mormon record at the time. There is accusations in a non-Mormon newspaper. And then there are later recollections by Latter-day Saints um, saying that they remember hearing it. And so those two things together for me suggest that something was going on. Um, when, And the whole idea behind those was that if you marry a Native woman, you will then have children with her. And then um, you might be you might be able to speed the redemption of Native peoples. Just to pause for a second, we, we've often talked about intermarriage um, also out west here in mm-hmm. Montana with Crow and other, which white men were doing specifically because also the land that they could gain access to. Was that potentially a factor or were we in a different area and time where that um, wasn't? I have never seen among Latter-day Saints a sense that they would gain access to land or to trade routes. For the Latter-day Saints, it really seems to have been a sense of religious mm-hmm. mission. I don't think the Latter-day Saints that I can tell recognized um, Native claims to the land to the extent that they would be concerned about gaining access to those through marriages to Native women. Um, They believe that they are living in the end times and that God and Jesus are going to establish a kingdom on earth and that the entire earth is going to be remade. Um, and so they're much less concerned about sort of establishing a legitimate claim through marriage. Um, but they are very much concerned in missionary work. And they aren't alone in this. There's actually instances among Protestant groups, particularly in Hawaii where um, and in Tahiti, um, where there are discussions of interracial marriage and whether or not that might be a way to speed the spread of the gospel. Mm. Um, these tend to be fairly uncommon. Um, there are a couple of instances in which Latter-day Saints, white Latter-day Saints married Native women, including a couple where they marry them as plural wives. Um, Dudley Levitt is a pioneer uh, in southern Utah, and he um, takes a Native woman as a plural wife. Um, and the historian Juanita Brooks, who's a fairly influential Latter-day Saint historian, um, is actually his granddaughter. And so in her memoir, she talks about um, her grandfather's native wife um, and their relationship with her children and with her. Um, and so these relationships did, did happen. But Latter-day Saints, like other white Americans, were fairly reticent about marrying native people. Um, and there were lots of concerns about whether or not those children um, would actually end up being assimilated into white society. And one of the things that I argue in the book is that adopting children, Native children, initially seems to be 
a less problematic way for Latter-day Saints to incorporate Native people into their families. Um, and at the the talk, I mentioned that um, she's I'm not a direct descendant, um, but one of my ancestors, like a great great aunt, um, the family history says that she ended up nursing a Native child um, along with one of her own children before the Native child died mm. as a toddler, and so. These children were brought into families. Some of them were treated like children. Um, some of them were treated as indentured servants. And there are actually laws in Utah regulating um, the incorporation of Native children into families as servants and saying sort of a minimum standard that you had to give them of education um, and of the kind of life that you had to provide. So indentured servitude was something by state law by now, by Utah? or Yeah, I'd have to look at the language. Um, it's regulated actually in a similar way to slavery okay. in Utah. And so Utah does have a system of chattel slavery. Um, and there's been a fair amount of debate among Mormon historians about whether this is slavery, whether this is um, kin-making, family-making, right. or whether it's indentured servitude. I think I would have to check that the language is actually indentured servitude that's used at the time. But um, I think the best way to think of it is that there's a wide variety of relationships that are established and that there's a wide variety of unfree labor um, that Native people are sometimes pushed into in Utah. It, it sounds, just from how you've talked about the whole history yeah. of Mormonism and all the divisions, um, where did the Latter-day Saints stand on the issue of slavery in general? Because we're yeah. before Civil War, but as we're talking here, a lot of this stuff... Yeah, uh, it changes over time. So Joseph Smith, we have evidence, did ordain some black men to the priesthood. He was never a fervent abolitionist. Um, he, Some historians will say that he was trying to avoid controversy. He didn't want to go there. I don't feel comfortable commenting on his reasons, um, but he never comes out as a, as a fervent abolitionist. Um, he does ordain some black men to the priesthood. Once they get to Utah... The restrict there starts to be restrictions placed on black people in Utah and the positions that they are able to hold. So um, I think I so I think one um, person whose life really exemplifies the way that the Latter Day Saints thought about African Americans is a woman named Jane Manning James. So she converts fairly early on. Uh, she lives in Nauvoo and she develops a close relationship with the Smith family. She wants to be um, attached to Joseph Smith's family through through sort of temple ceilings. So the Latter-day Saints have this theology where you can create relationships between people that last into the afterlife through certain temple rituals. And so this is sort of the idea of eternal marriage. Um, she wants to be bound to Joseph Smith in some way. But there's a lot of concern about interracial marriage, what that would look like. Emma, his wife, isn't really comfortable with polygamy. She goes back and forth. And what they ultimately decide is to actually bind her to Joseph Smith as a servant. Mm -hmm. um, and so she has a ceremony done for her in which she is eternally bound to Joseph Smith as a servant, which gives her a relationship to the Smith family, but also places her within this sort of second-class citizenship. She doesn't get to be bound to the Smiths as a daughter, as many other Latter-day Saints were. She doesn't get to become a family member. She is a servant. Mm -hmm. um, what this means for her is she holds, uh, she sees herself as a fairly important figure within Mormonism. She travels west, and then she ends up, um, 
trying to gain access to the temple in Utah for years. And her attempts to gain access illustrate the ways in which this the racial ideas of the saints are constricting and solidifying. So Brigham Young is the one who actually institutes what's become known as the priesthood band, um, sometimes more formally known as the um, priesthood and temple ban. He um, allows Latter-day Saints to bring enslaved people to Utah. <coughs> there are a couple of instances in which people actually paid their tithing with enslaved people and gave them to the church. Oh. Um, and Brigham Young is the one who says that black men cannot... Um, participate or hold the priesthood. And he says this even though Joseph Smith himself um, had given his consent for ordaining some black men earlier. And then he also says that black women cannot participate in the temple. Um, so Joseph, or sorry, Jane Manning James um, had already had some temporal rituals done for her. Later on in her life, she wants to do those temporal rituals herself and continually petitions to be given access to the temple. And she is denied time and time again based on this developing idea of a racial priesthood and temple ban. Um, this ban is usually actually what I'm asked about when I talk about Latter-day Saints and race. Most people think of the priesthood restriction. And part of that is because it lasts for a really long time. Um, there is no church in the United States that does not have a troubled racial past. Mm -hmm. um, but the Latter-day Saints maintain this priesthood restriction until 1978 when a church leader receives a revelation telling him to lift the priesthood ban. Um, and so before then, there had been black members of the church, um, but they had never been able to sort of fully access the temple. They had never been able to hold the priesthood. They had never been allowed to give their family members priesthood blessings, which is an important part of sort of Latter-day Saint beliefs. Um, in the early 20th century, Latter-day Saints will place their hands upon each other and pray for healing, and they see themselves as being able to heal people. Black people are restricted from that. Mm -hmm. um, they can't receive their temple clothing. They can't participate in the most sacred rituals. And so those ideas sort of develop over time, and the institution of slavery in Utah is part of that, I think, and part of those racial restrictions that it sort of develop once they get to Utah. I'm interested, Amanda, because you say how it's really in the 19th century early on that these ideas that Native Americans mm -hmm. are these sort of lost tribe of, yeah. of Israel. Is there any thought, and, and that changes over time, you know, yeah. maybe people aren't necessarily today thinking that so much. Um, is there any discussion of where then you have people who are very dark skinned from the continent of mm -hmm. Africa, sub-Saharan Africa fit in to? Yeah, it comes from um, Christian folklore and biblical ideas. So they talk about the curse of Cain and the curse of Ham, mm. um, which is the idea that uh, so Cain famously uh, slays his brother in the Bible. Um, and there is some language in the Bible that Cain therefore has a mark upon his face and is um, in Christian folklore, some people believe that he sort of wanders the earth thereafter, marked with this mark, which some people interpret as dark skin. Um, Ham comes out of the story of Noah. Mm. Um, and I believe that Ham sees his father naked. 
Um, and oh no, not I, Noah naked. That's terrifying. <laughs> he was uh, done for after that. <laughs> and there's some sort of laughing um, that goes on, and they are Ham is cursed, I believe, for for some sort of thing that goes on with Noah. Well, Noah shouldn't have gotten naked. I believe Noah. <laughs> so because it's very similar to what yeah. was going on in the development of anthropology and physical anthropology and trying to understand and categorize people yeah. according, you know, and they're looking back biblically and trying to talk about where these different um, groups are coming yeah. from and, and tying it to different sons of somebody, Abraham, Noah. So I just, it, I was wondering if there was also going to be another biblical reference yeah. for yet this other group of people. So it does come out of the Bible, definitely. And they're drawing on the same ideas as other 19th century Protestants, Christians are drawing on. Um, it actually ends up manifesting itself in some really interesting ways. One of my favorite articles about uh, Mormon history is by uh, a friend named Matt Bowman. And Matt went to the, I think, Utah State Folklore Archives, and he looked really closely at the uh, stories of Bigfoot. And what's interesting is Latter-day Saints often, before the lifting of the priesthood ban, would identify Bigfoot as either Cain or as a black man. Mm -hmm. And then after the lifting of the priesthood ban, it's then that Latter-day Saints begin to see um, Bigfoot as an ape or as a creature more akin to what other Americans imagine him as. Some prehistoric hairy beast. Right. Or, I mean, depending on Biped. who you talk to, mm. some trans-dimensional figure who sometimes appears. Oh, okay. Mm. That's, yeah, I need to delve a little more into that. Yeah, but it's interesting. <laughs> Another podcast. <Yeah. laughs> that is interesting. That's fascinating. Yeah, I mean, it's just in all these sort of weird ways ways, the way that the sort of racial ideas end up manifesting themselves. Um, before Matt did that work, I would have never guessed that you could use the folklore archives to say something about the way that the Latter-day Saints are thinking about, about race. I mean, I usually don't think of Bigfoot and ideas of race, but mm -hmm. it's there as well. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Well, you go. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I want to talk a little bit about, in your book, you talk about kind of this formation of um, polygamy in yeah. the, the Latter-day Saints church. And so, um, and that was really interesting to me because I thought that was an idea from the get-go, but it really wasn't. So can you speak a little bit to that? Yeah. So the beginnings are a little bit murky. Um, we don't actually know when Joseph Smith started to practice polygamy. And when people debate it, they'll sort of debate whether individual women, if it was just a rumor, if he was having an affair, if this is polygamy. Um, and so we don't know exactly when Joseph Smith started to practice polygamy. We do know that it started sometime in the 1830s. Some women or some historians will point to um, a woman named Fanny Alger as his first plural wife. Right. Okay. She was a um, young woman working in their household. Um, there is a rumor, and I'd have to look to see exactly who is credited this rumor, um, that Joseph Smith is having, I think it's, quote, a dirty, rotten little affair end quote. I might have it slightly off, um, but it does stick in your head yeah. uh, with her. And some people will identify her as his first plural wife. Other people will point to a woman named Louisa Beeman. Um, what we do know is that in early Mormonism, the practice of polygamy is done fairly secretly. Joseph Smith, Brigham Young, the other leaders of the church will um, talk to young women about polygamy. They'll introduce them to the idea that there has been a revelation um, compelling them to practice polygamy. And then some of the women will reject that and others will 
um, accept the idea, and they will end up getting married secretly to Joseph Smith, Brigham Young, or one of the other elders of the church. And it creates quite a bit of tension and consternation in and among the early Latter-day Saints. Um, Emma, for example, does not know who her husband is married to Mm -hmm. um, or what those relationships look like. Um, Women may or may not know if their sisters, if their children are married. Um, And there are stories of Joseph Smith um, approaching men and asking to be married to their daughters or even to women who are already married. Um, I think the youngest member or woman who ends up married to Joseph Smith is a woman named um, Velate, Velate Kimball, Velite. I'm not sure exactly how to pronounce her name. Um, She, in the most recent histories that the church has published, is referred to as a few months shy of 15, mm-hmm. um, which means that she's 14 right. when she marries him. Um, and she um, later on describes it as something that she believes was divine. Um, people will insist um, that she did not have sexual relations with Joseph Smith. Um, whether or not that is true, um, she was sort of set apart as his wife and would not have had a completely normal childhood thereafter. Um, Did they have any children? Not that I know of. Um, the Kimball, so she ends up um, moving to Utah and is married to another prominent church leader. Um, there are a lot of Kimballs in Utah um, descended from this line and from uh, Heber C. Kimball, who she is related to. Um, and so she becomes a really sort of important figure for Mormon feminists and talking about sort of what those relationships were like. Um, there's also stories of sort of the the ways in which the practice of polygamy divided women. So one story that one of my ancestors is famous for is the story of um, Emma Smith, Joseph Smith's wife, pushing one of his plural wives down the stairs. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way that the story goes, or at least the way that I've heard it, is that Emma had heard rumors of polygamy and what was going on. Um, And she came up and saw her husband, Joseph, kissing Eliza R. Snow. Um, And according to the story, Eliza R. Snow was pregnant. Mm -hmm. Um, Emma, according to the story, then pushes Eliza down the stairs um, in a fit of rage. Um, And Eliza then miscarries the child. And Eliza never ends up having a child of her own thereafter. Um, The reason that I say that my family is sort of involved in the story is one of my ancestors, actually the one who converted in upstate New York, um, is one of the sources quoted. And so she is described as being quite um, concerned about the practice of polygamy Mm. um, and then of telling this story thereafter. Mm. So in early Mormonism, the practice of polygamy is fairly quiet and and not talked about a lot in secret, um, even within the Mormon community itself. Not everybody would have known that polygamy was being practiced. Then, after Joseph Smith's death, um, Brigham Young leads the church west, and they end up organizing that move west um, and having several of these sort of young sister wives or polygamous wives moving west together. Mm-hmm. And Susie Young Gates, who's Brigham Young's daughter, describes her mother um, and Brigham Young's other wives as girl wives and talks about the relationships that they developed on the plains and describes it as the moment in which polygamous families were really allowed to live together openly as families for the first time. And so even though polygamy starts earlier, 
the way that it's going to be lived ends up developing on the plains and then once they get to Utah. Um, and it's actually a really interesting moment because this is the first time that the Latter-day Saints are moving across the Great Plains where there are fur traders who have native women that they have married polygamously. Mm -hmm. um, and they're also going to very quickly begin trying to transform indigenous families at the same time that they're establishing their own sort of marital and sexual system. Hmm. Interesting. Very complicated. Yeah. They're, yeah. they're removing themselves from a context where they know they have to keep polygamy secret because they know that there'll be a backlash yeah. and they've already been receiving some violent backlash. And then they're going to a place where now they can sort of experiment with this and put it out in the open mm -hmm. and create a whole thing anew. Um, one of the things I've heard um, by Mormon authors who've written is that mothers are supposed to start a notebook um, mm -hmm. when they get married and when children are born and really kind of document the family mm -hmm. history. And, and some of what you're doing in this book is entwining a broader history with your own family history yeah. and, and explaining to us also that that's part of what Mormonism is, and I, I should be using Church of the Latter-day Saints um, when I'm speaking about them. But that's, is it is it a task of a woman in particular? And then how do women see their role in the church and and in this kind of changing out of polygamy and and dealings with race and adoption and everything? Just just a little bit of your thoughts on where we are now. Yeah, small Sorry. question. <laughs> Famous for them. <laughs> um, so to take the first part about record keeping, part of the injunctions that Joseph Smith receives is the injunction to keep a record. And that is a religious duty for both men and women. Okay. Um, so women often will keep genealogical records, but there's an expectation that men and women will keep journals that can then become a record of the church's history, which is also somewhat seen as a sacred history, that it's this history you're going to pass on to your children. Um, so Latter-day Saint missionaries, when they are sent out into the field, are expected to keep uh, journals of their experiences. Churches, um, or wards as they're called, are expected to send back records every year and to keep records of their of their family members and of their church members. Um, when you go through the temple, they take down records. And so there's this massive production of records, both on an individual scale, but also then on a church-wide scale. And so the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is probably the best documented uh, religious organization in the United States. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and part of that also has to do with the nature of temple rituals themselves. Latter-day Saints believe that the rituals that they go through in the temple can save both the living and the dead. Mm -hmm. And that after you die, you will be presented... Um, with the opportunity to accept the gospel um, as some people see that as really sort of lovely and universalist. Um, as someone who grew up non-Mormon, at times it feels like you can never escape even after you die. Mm. Um, but part of being able to do those temporal rituals for those who have passed on requires that you do historical research. And so Latter-day Saints have not only kept records of their own history, um, there's actually a wonderful scrapbook that is kept by the, I think, by the official church historian, although I'm sure it's now delegated to someone else, where they literally have newspaper clippings that have been pasted into a scrapbook and have become part of the official record of the church. So you wow. can turn to any day since 
probably, I haven't looked to see when it starts, probably 1830. And they will have the newspaper clippings that have been pasted into a notebook. Oh my gosh. Yeah, anything that has to do with them or anything, anything that, that happened? Anything that has to do uh, with the church. Um, early on, there's a lot of like clippings of missionaries returning, of Mormons who have been mentioned in the news. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been indexed. So you can look up individuals and it'll tell you which days they appear. Wow. It's an incredible resource. Wow. Um, hmm. Clippings from diaries, newspapers, um, I'm trying to think, letters. Such an interesting aspect of religion and belief in spirituality to have this constant documentation of your own life and then knowing that it's contributing to this larger thing and that you're tied to that. Fascinating. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so so it is both male and female. Many, so I'm sure many people are familiar with Ancestry and Family Search. Mm-hmm. Both of them have Latter-day Saint origins. Um, my step-grandmother uh, was a faithful Latter-day Saint, wore her garments uh, till the day she died. Um, she received a calling when she was older. She's probably in her 70s um, to actually go through and transcribe names on Ancestry. Um, and so it's literally sort of a religious calling that will yeah. be given to people um, as part of this record keeping. Um, an amazing treasure for historians. But they'll yeah. also go out because of the need for temple records um, and transcribe and copy and microfilm and digitize records from other places that don't have to do with Latter-day Saints so that those names can go through the temple. Um, And so it's this really powerful, powerful record keeping. Um, As as a historian who uses those (laughs) records quite frequently, I am very thankful for that. (laughs) I mean, check the transcriptions. They also called my grandfather, who is partially blind, so I cannot guarantee their accuracy, but they tried their best. Good to know. Yeah. How how is the status of what? How did they feel about their status given the history of polygamy in the history of the church? Could you read what women yeah. themselves today mm-hmm. when yeah, yeah, when yeah. considering this history that this was um, divined that this yeah. should happen and then it was you know I mean statehood I think was one of the reasons why yeah. they really had to face this so where do women stand yeah. on that history I'm just curious. Um, So I will try to give a brief 200-year history of women in the church. Uh, So early on, women actually are have a fair amount of spiritual power. So in the early years, and this would be while polygamy was developing, we have records of women laying their hands on each other for healing, um, of anointing each other's bodies um, with sacred rituals right before childbirth. Um, There are examples of women speaking in tongues um, in the early church. And so women saw themselves as having quite a bit of spiritual power within the early church. There were some Latter-day Saint women who hated polygamy from the very beginning, people who left the church because of polygamy. There were other women who found that it actually suited them better than monogamy. Um, There's sort of the more funny examples of like, hey, I would love to have a woman to do the housework. Um, Right. We've all said we need a wife, right? (laughs) Right, When we're raising kids. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I mean, uh, you're welcome to edit this You probably need one now. Yeah, (laughs) to take care of the kids. Honestly, like... There are sometimes, right, when you would just like a woman to entertain your husband in all sorts of different ways, uh, to put it euphemistically, right? Like, yes, we've all been there. <laughs> <laughs> we 
can relate. But the practice of yeah. it being, you know... So, so much jealousy also oh, happened. so much. I think that mm. is such a hard one to ever get past. Well, okay. and I think, I mean, there are many people in the world who practice polygamy. I think one of the keys, if I am giving advice on being a, ses- a ses- please, ses- please successful do polygamist... Please do in case we have them out there in our <laughs> well, listening group, yeah. We, we might. I mean, I have met polygamists. Uh, we have like three listeners, yeah. so I doubt it. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I think... It's really hard to go from being a monogamist and being raised as one to accepting polygamy. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's really hard for those first generations of Latter-day Saints. Polygamy for the Latter-day Saints, for the mainstream church, only lasts about 60 years. Mm. So everybody who is practicing polygamy hasn't really gotten away from those expectations of monogamy. If you're raised a polygamist, I assume that in some ways that makes it just a little bit easier because you don't have those same expectations surrounding romantic love. That's actually one of the first things that Latter-day Saints talk about is if you're going to be successful in polygamy, ideas around romantic love are going to get in the way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in their public writing, they much more emphasize relationships with children and emphasis emphasize relationships with sister wives and de-emphasize romantic love. I just think that is so convenient for men. Like, it just does not <laughs> ring true for me. Yeah, sure, you guys don't have expectations of romantic love, but I'm going to be kissing this pregnant woman that I secretly <laughs> married, you know, as, as my third wife. I don't think so. I would have pushed her down the stairs, too. So, so yes, I one, hear you. One benefit, though, I will say, and I am myself not a polygamist, so I... <laughs> I know, I know, you're telling the story, I get yep, it. Yep. Uh, but... One thing that it did allow women to do, and it shouldn't have taken polygamy to allow women to do this, but Brigham Young also calls women to travel east to, for example, the University of Michigan and be trained as doctors and nurses. Mm. Um, And so there are opportunities for women to get education and not to be bound up by sort of the expectations of childcare. The other people for whom it's sometimes really convenient is I'm often asked, like, were there queer Latter-day Saints? Exactly. I was just going to say, if I was a lesbian and you couldn't be out, I would be so for polygamy. It'd be great. So Mm -hmm. we have examples of women who say, like, I love my sister wives more than I love my husband. And I'm Mm -hmm. really looking forward to being reunited with my sister wives. Mm -hmm. Are you Um, reading between the lines when you do that research? In some cases, uh, but not in all. Right, right. Of course. But you, you have to imagine that... Just knowing what we know about human diversity, there yeah. have had to have been cases where well, that might have suited. Yeah. Well, and this isn't necessarily about polygamy, but Brigham Young had a son who um, would sometimes dress up in women's clothing. Mm-hmm. Um, and we don't know how he identified. We don't know if he um, considered himself. Um, I mean, they would have used different terms at the time, but yeah. we don't know. Oh, if, I love that. I didn't yeah. know that story. I mean, he could have been today transgender. He could have just been somebody who was non-binary, who liked to play with gender. We don't know. But he did exist and is really a fascinating character. As we know in every every time period. Um, Amanda, it's been so much fun today to have you on the show and to discuss this really nuanced and complicated topic. And and you did such a lovely job in the book making it... um, full of stories that people, whether they're members of the church or not, can read and pull some very important things out of it. And it helps understand, I think, a particular part of the history of the West. And I know this isn't something, this isn't the only aspect of the West that you've studied by any means, but I think it really, for me, shone a new light. Uh, I think for Crystal, too, there were things that we really learned that we didn't know before and some very specific histories, and you brought to light some specific people. And I think the real treasure in there, too, is understanding your own family connection, which 
we, we all have one of these stories mm-hmm. that go back. And I, I love how you encourage other people to think about their own histories that way. So unfortunately, we've run out of time, but I want to thank you so much for talking with us today and tell people where can they find your book, American Zions? Well, thank you so much. Um, there's copies of the book, book available at Amazon um, through your independent bookseller, um, through the University of Nebraska Press website. And then if you're local, I do have a few copies uh, that I can sell personally, in which case uh, email me at amanda.hendrickskomodo at gmail.com. Um, if you don't know how to spell that, which is perfectly fine, it's a very long name, uh, you can Google and Google will correct you and send you to my faculty page. All right. Well, thank you so much, Amanda. So what what a wonderful conversation today. Thanks. Thank you so much. So thank you, Amanda, and thanks to all our listeners out there for joining us today. If you love this podcast, please tell a friend and make sure to subscribe so it shows up on your podcast feed each week and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. Thanks for listening today, and we hope that you can join us again to find out more about The the Dirt dirt on on the the past. Past. Thank you again to the MSU Women's Center for sponsoring this episode today. And a big thank you to our editors, Drake Pinnell and Sierra Thompson. And thanks to Lawson Alegria for mixing the music and to Steve Durbin at KGVM and John Chadwell for helping us get this podcast out in the world. 